Howdy, y'all. Welcome to the show this week. Hello, Crystal. Hello, sir. How's How are it going? You? I'm, I'm doing <laughs> wonderful. Um, so we are going to be talking to a guy by the name of Dylan Radigan. Yes. Um, I'm really excited. You know, it's funny. I don't know what percentage of the audience has heard of him because it has been a while since he's been on MSNBC, since he's been sort of prominent in the political commentary game, if you will. So I feel like some of the younger people in the audience might not know who he is. But for the people who do know who he is, the fact that I just said Dylan Radigan, they were like, (laughs) (laughs) And they should feel that way. Yeah, because he's sort of like, you know, he was one of the most amazing commentators. And this was back in the era when you were on MSNBC, OG Jenk Uger was on MSNBC, Glenn Greenwald was on MSNBC, and Dylan Radigan was at, there screaming at everybody in sight. Mm-hmm. So, Ed yeah. Schultz was there at Ed that Ed Schultz point. was there at that point. It was right. just a lot more... It was just you know, interesting. It was just yeah. interesting. People had different opinions. They didn't all just like... And they really the believed shit. Points. Some people actually believed shit. It, was, it wasn't just resistance drone nonsense where you know exactly what they're going to say before they even come on air. So, yeah. anyway, it really was the golden era of MSNBC, and I think he's a fascinating guy, so I'm really looking forward to talking to him. A couple things we could talk about this week. You know, apparently we got the news that there was a Biden aide Mm -hmm. who said COVID, this is the best admission of all time, COVID is the best thing that ever happened to him. (laughs) It's just true. (laughs) That's quite an admission, isn't it? It is. So this is um, the first, this is Jonathan Allen and Amy Parnes next week are coming out with the book that's like the game change version of the Biden campaign. Mm -hmm. That title is Lucky, How Joe Biden Barely Won the Presidency. That's so true, though. It's so true. And uh, so this is Anita Dunn, who is one of his senior strategists. She's credited with the sort of like low-key, no-drama approach to Trump, which I think was the right call, by the way. And so this is apparently her admission was that COVID is the best thing that ever happened to him. And in fact, like, it's sad to say, but without coronavirus and Trump's just like manifest horrible incompetence in dealing with it, his lack of care, his lying about it, like all of the ways that he just utterly failed at that. There's almost no doubt that he would have gotten reelected. Like up to that point, the Democrats arguments against him focusing in on Russiagate, all this stuff, they had fallen on completely deaf ears. None of it had worked. None of it. None of it had really landed. In fact, after the impeachment hearings, Republican Party identification was at like an all time high or in recent years high. So this had done nothing but to help him. And so not only to defeat Donald Trump, but also it really helped save him in the primary, too, because he was already on a roll. Right. He already had the edge. And then coronavirus hits and everyone's like, it's over. And even, you know, Bernie at that point was just basically like, all right, well, this is it. Everybody felt like, okay, well, we got to just go with the safe candidate and this is what we got to do. And so that really ended the Democratic primary as well. I'm going to have night terrors over what you just said, (laughs) because it's totally true. Like the thing that won Biden the primary is one simple thing. One. The perception of electability. Mm -hmm. And so people thought not which candidate do I agree with more? Who's correct on the policy? People went from maybe some of them thinking that to all of a sudden, who do I think other people will think can beat Trump? 
It's not even who do I think can beat Trump. Right. It's who do I think other people think can beat Trump. So people are playing this meta game of electability, which serves establishment narratives. And so the safe option was Biden, even though, and it drives me crazy, Bernie Sanders didn't make this argument, even though we just ran the experiment in 2016 and the safe candidate was actually not the safe candidate at all. Yeah. That, that's why people, you know, Bernie would have won was a huge thing after 2016 because every single poll showed him crushing Donald Trump. Now, granted, things will change and things would evolve as the campaign went on. And that's not set in stone, but it's a hell of a lot more set in stone than how Hillary Clinton did. And she lost. And so Bernie needed to make that argument, needed to say, no, actually, I'm the safe candidate because we ran the experiment in 2016. The milk toast centrist lost. So you got to vote for me. And so, yeah, Biden tripped over his dick and won the primary. And then he tripped over his dick again and won the general election. Yeah. And it really is. The, I'm sorry, but I really think it's true. Um, it was the perception of electability in the primary. And then in the general election, it became the correct strategy to not do anything, yeah. to just hide. People were making fun of him. Oh, he's sitting in his basement and winning. It's like, yeah. And if I was advising his campaign, you know what I would have told him? Do Go sit exactly, in your basement and you're exactly going to win that. this thing. No, it right. was all in Trump's hands. If he had been even, um, I mean, it's pathetic to realize, but if he had been even a modicum better, like if he. Even if he Andrew Cuomo faked it. Right. If he, oh, absolutely. Yes. Then it would have been no problem. Would have cruised to reelection if he had sent out one more round of checks. If he had even this, even this small of a thing. So it came down to literally 40,000 votes in key I know, states. which is tighter than 2016, 40, actually. 40,000 votes. Yeah. If he had just encouraged his people to vote by mail, he probably would have won. I mean, it's that razor thin. And so the other the question I have for you is like, obviously, at some point with this one advisor, at least, but has to be with other people. There's a realization that he's basically saved by the pandemic. Do you think there's any reflection on that? Do you think there's any like because we know after 2016, there was no self-reflection. It was mm -hmm. all in on mm -hmm. it was Russia's fault. And it was sexism and it was all these things It had nothing to do with Hillary Clinton. She's amazing. She's perfect. She didn't do anything wrong. It was just like all these other superfluous factories factors. Do you think that there's any reckoning with the fact that they almost let the guy that they view as literal Hitler win again? Uh, the answer is no, because. I think their thought process is, yes, Biden eked out a victory, but Bernie would have lost. Bernie would have lost. Mm. And so that's the best possible outcome that could have happened. So I think they sort of buy into the narrative of like, it's not that Biden is bad. It's that, oh, my God, it's Teflon Don and we barely beat Teflon Don. You know so what I mean? Still, there's no like, hey, no. maybe we could because, do things a little different and get a different outcome. They can't accept that because that would change the entire way that they do politics. Because the whole way they do politics, like baked into the cake of their version of politics is we take a bunch of money from Wall Street. We take a bunch of money from the military industrial complex. We do the bidding of the donors. And like we give you some tiny little tweaks around the edges. We say things like racism is bad. I am OK with gay people. <laughs> like this is the it's like hey i'm not an objectively shitty person and also i'm going to keep the status quo going that's all they got or like um when jen saki the press secretary got asked about like what are you doing for my small business and she's like first of all we nominated a woman to head the small business administration like, i don't know if you noticed mission accomplished i'm a woman <laughs> no big deal <laughs> um but you know interestingly enough Apparently, and this speaks to how, you know, 
everybody sort of knew that Biden was tripping over his dick because apparently Obama behind the scenes, he preferred Beto O'Rourke. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So that was the other revelation in this book is that he preferred Beto and that he worried that um, he worried that Biden was going to embarrass himself. It says uh Biden aides, he told Biden aides that he feared his friend would only succeed in embarrassing himself and tarnishing a distinguished Washington career. And we also know, by the way, that Obama was an integral part of keeping Joe from running back in 2016 and handing right. the nomination mm-hmm. to Hillary Clinton. Political genius there. Um, and look, whatever you think of Joe, I do think he's a better candidate than Hillary Clinton would have had a better shot the la- in that election than Hillary ended up obviously having. But I also like I feel an- another way about this, which is that um, the Obama people reportedly and I think this this rings true. They had this kind of sneering contempt for Joe because he didn't have the Ivy League pedigree. He went to a public university. Mm-hmm. He has kind of like an old school relationship based politics rather than this uber intellectual Obama style politics. Mm-hmm. And so when I read these anecdotes about Obama sort of shitting on Biden, it actually kind of makes me like Biden more. Well, yeah, because they are smug limousine liberals and it says everything about obama that he was convinced well joe clearly is going to embarrass himself but i know for sure Beto on the other Beto end. o'rourke <laughs> is not going to embarrass himself the fact that he couldn't see that Beto is also embarrassing in a different way right. shows his tremendous bias yes like he has the bias towards the smug elitists in the Democratic Party. Right. Because he's also a smug elitist in the Democratic Party. Also this, um, there's this like media fetish with all the candidates that pattern their speech in the same way that Obama Oh my God. Mayor Pete, Beto O'Rourke. There's a number of them. Cory Booker. Cory Booker. There's a lot of them who Mm, just I will tell you my thoughts on the issue are as follows. See, if you did that, Obama would love you instantly and the media, apparently, because that seems to be how it works. But yeah, it is sort of hilariously bad instincts to pick Hillary Clinton and then to pick Beto to think that's the guy. And we kind of knew that at the time because there was there were reports, I think, of there were Obama aides who were involved in Beto's campaign. We kind of had an inkling that that may be the case. And then ultimately, you know, that guy goes from when he first went to Iowa Remember the crowds and the media the, tried to push him so oh hard it all just Oprah, imploded. Oprah profile he was on that cover. The I'm born to be in it. Born cover. to be in it, man. <laughs> Everybody in the country took one look at that and said, "Fuck you." Yeah, completely. I'm just born to be in completely, it, man. Completely. Completely. God, I so, hate that guy so much. Um, let me find this. This is another thing that was really interesting that I wanted to get your thoughts on. Echelon Insight did this polling of what people's top issue sets are. Are today. And so the overall, if you ask everybody, the overall issue sets are precisely what you would expect. Mm-hmm. Number one is economic damage from COVID-19. Number two is the spread of COVID-19. Number three, worryingly, is budget deficits and the national debt. That's not um, But, you know, I think to me, that's sort of like a normal issue set of priorities. Mm-hmm. It shows also the divergence between how people here feel like the economy is doing versus like normal people out mm-hmm. in the country recogn- who are looking at their own situations or recognizing there is total wreckage and carnage littered across the landscape. But then they also asked 
just Republicans and just Democrats what their top issue sets were. And for Republicans, the number one issue was illegal immigration. Number two, lack of support for the police. Number three, high taxes. Then you go to liberal bias in mainstream media, general moral decline of the country, socialism and Antifa violence. If you ask Democrats, it's almost like the polar opposite. Mm -hmm. So for Democrats, the number one issue overwhelmingly that they're concerned about are Donald Trump supporters. That's the number one issue. So you have, I mean, the Republicans are a little more, their things are a little more mixed, but a lot of them basically amount to scary liberals or bad and destroying the country. Or like, brown people. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. Like these mm -hmm. other people are killing the country. And then for liberals, it's like the Trump supporters are killing the country. Yeah. So it's another indication of this sense that people have been turned into viewing that the their political opponents, not just like elites in Washington, but their regular neighbor who's voting for Trump is the biggest threat to their life. Yeah, it actually makes me think of um, Hate Inc. It makes me think of Matt Taibbi's book. 100%. Because, yeah, you do have the Fox Newsification and MSNBCification uh, of hyper-political people where, yeah, they're very, they've just drunk the partisan Kool-Aid and they have the partisan brainworms. And so, I mean, seriously, if you bring up immigration or lack of police support as your top, like, if you think that's your topic, you're just objectively incorrect about what the things are in this country that are affecting you. Right. Your boss has a lot more of an impact on your life. <laughs> yes. That I mean, the fact that you we didn't get a recurring UBI check during this pandemic and depression, that's a way, that's a way bigger problem uh, in terms of the Democrats saying, oh, Trump supporters are the problem. Unfortunately, you know, I could have predicted that the hardcore mm -hmm. partisan Democrats would say that because there really is this thing now where they define themselves as to who they're against in the same way that the Republicans, I'm against immigration. Okay, okay, relax. Like, I'm against Trump supporters. Okay, okay, relax. If you actually want to get stuff done and you actually believe in your message, you should be willing to engage and at least give people the opportunity and the chance for redemption and agreement. You know, like that's been something I've said for a number of years now is that I, mm -hmm. I don't get me wrong. Are there people who are TFGs as I call them too far gone? Of course. Yes. Of course they exist. There's no doubt about it. The question is what percentage of the population is TFG? And what do you do if somebody's not TFG and they just disagree with you? And that's where you need the engagement and the dialogue. And you'd be surprised as to, you know, how much you can agree with somebody, how much you can maybe change their mind or they help change your mind. And what we're seeing here is the polar opposite to that approach. Yes. What we're seeing here is people falling in love with their own smug opinions and just relishing the partisan brainworms. It's not even their own opinions. It's just falling in love with their like partisan tribal identity. And so it really doesn't matter what the issue is mm -hmm. or what the there's no principle involved. It's yes. just purely unthinking partisan cheerleading. And it's not an accident, right, that people these opinions have formed because as you were alluding to Taibi's book, like this is the whole landscape that the media sets up. It's great for them for ratings. If you're terrified of all of half the country, right, that's going to keep you riveted, keep you tuning in for what those evil nefarious people are up to now. So that's number one. 
But this is a great deal for politicians because if all of the issues that your core base are most concerned about are basically not policy issues, they're all just cultural signaling issues. Cultural war stuff. Yeah. It completely lets you off the hook from having to do anything. So that's how you can end up with a situation where if you ask, you know, the the country writ large what their number one concern is and they're like, Jesus Christ, you got to do something about the economy. And like, we want to see checks and we want to see $15 minimum wage and we want to see massive unionization. We want to see a jobs program. There's a poll. 93% of the country wants a big federal jobs program. 93%. Mm-hmm. So when you look at that and then you see none of that happening, this is why. This is why. Because they don't have to do anything. All Joe Biden has to do to get his whatever he has, 98% approval rating or whatever it is in the Democratic Party, is not be Donald Trump. Yeah, That's literally mm-hmm. all he has to do for most Democrats to be like, this is amazing. This is great. It's kind of incredible how culture war virtue signaling can just sort of deflect and obfuscate successfully in people's minds, where you just take out the real issue, uh, you know, inject some culture war virtue signaling, and as long as the crowd agrees with your culture war virtue signaling, they interpret that as like, this person is doing something, and they believe in something. Where no, it's just empty and it's hollow. And the fact of the matter is, the real problems in the country are just, they're less sexy. They're less sexy. The real problems in the country big money and corruption. And yeah, trying to explain to somebody the dynamics of like the Buckley versus Vallejo Supreme Court decision and then McCutcheon and Citizens United and like, hey, here are the dynamics. Here's how it works. Here's what a PAC is. Here's how you can donate directly to candidates or you can donate directly to political groups. And what happened is there's basically no limits at this point. So you have the nefarious influence of billionaires and corporations and they buy the politicians and suddenly get them to do their bidding as the people are ignored. It's complex to say all that and it's not sexy, but that's the real core of the problem. And people need to digest and adjust and realize that it's not necessarily that your asshole uncle, who's a MAGA person, they're not really the core of the problem. You could disagree with them on plenty of things. I'd agree with you in that disagreement, Yeah, but they're not the core of the problem. They're just not the thing that's dragging the country down. I actually disagree with you that those core issues are less sexy. And I think Bernie Sanders' candidacy sort of disproves that because the core of his pitch was about corruption and big money and the way that the system was rigged. And if you're an effective, and he's an extraordinarily effective communicator, mm-hmm. obviously, but that sparked, you know, he was one of the most, maybe the most successful grassroots candidate of all time. So I don't think it's that the issues themselves aren't interesting to people because you cover those issues and I cover those issues on our shows all the time. And people are profoundly interested in understanding the dynamics of what's going on. I think the actors involved have an interest in not focusing on those issues, not holding to account to actually solve them. And so that's how we get the system that we have. I I just, sorry to interrupt. Sure. I just want to see the day where... When somebody brings up some culture war shit as opposed to some substantive economic shit, that everybody's reaction is uniformly across the board like, shut the fuck up with your culture war bullshit. Right. I just feel like it's too easy because I actually agree with your point. I think your point is correct, but it's just too easy for the culture war stuff to sort of bump everything else out of the way. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. That, be- that upsets me. That upsets me. Yeah. And that and that's, again, that's like the system that has been set up. And I think it's a perfect actual transition of talking about um, and introducing Dylan because one of the things that he's just totally seen through and completely rejects, having 
come up in this cable news ecosystem is the mindless partisan cheerleading of like Republicans are bad and Democrats mm-hmm. are good or Democrats are bad and Republicans are good and how pointless all of that is if you don't actually have a sort of democratic structure that's going to support real people wielding power versus this cartel of elites who are all corrupt in different ways and basically in bed with each other. Totally. And um, I think with that, is it time? I think we shall. I think it's time. So I know Dylan from his work. He was a financial journalist. He was at Bloomberg. He won awards for his Enron coverage. He was a soothsayer in the financial crisis. He was on CNBC. He launched Fast Money there. He was at MSNBC. Now he's involved in so many business ventures, um, really interesting stuff that I could not possibly name them all. But he started uh, a medical or he's invested in a medical glove company that he's really proud of. He's working on a company that's developed like creating heart tissue all this stuff that is super tangible and super interesting he's a strategist at tasty works as well um and he tells me which we'll ask him about as well he's thinking of starting a sub stack so there we go interesting that's exciting and with that we will bring in dylan radigan dylan radigan it is so great to see you how are you uh it's an absolute pleasure uh nice to see both of you it's uh I, I, again, I think the last time I spoke to you, I was, I was, I had sworn off any video interviews of any kind, Crystal. When the last time we spoke, I was only doing. Yes, phone we talked time. by phone last time. And so, but I've been Jimmy Dore. Actually, is the one who finally broke me down and was said, "Listen," because I don't know if you, well, I was doing phone interviews with Jimmy, and then finally he was like, "Listen, like." The rest of the world, all you have to do is sit in front of a laptop and click on Skype. It's not like, <laughs> it's not a huge bar. It's not a huge lift we're asking for. And so I say, okay. We all so need to see your beautiful you. face, Dylan. Um, I think you know that. I'm sure you know this, but maybe not everybody does. You're the very first person who ever put me on television. So everything that's come yeah. after that, if you despise me, you can blame Dylan. If you like me, you can <laughs> give Dylan credit. But for people who don't know you particularly well, and I'm actually interested to hear your answer to this as well. Like, how do you? How would you describe your ideology or your worldview with regards to politics? Um, I mean, I would say I, my my instincts are that of, I would say, a humanist and an optimist. It, but I would say humanism and optimism tend to be contradictory to politics in general. I think that the mm-hmm. issue, you know, people talk about, oh, well, the politics, this or that. But if you if you look at the history of power, I'm talking over thousands of years every, for every country, mm-hmm. or if you just look at the history of the contemporary iterations of power in every country in the world, Power preserves itself at the expense of the majority, whether that's in China and Russia, whether that's in uh, France and Germany, whether that's in Mexico and Brazil, or whether that's in the United States. I just think that, you know, where we run into problems is when we expect politics and power to act in the interest of the majority, um, which is certainly something that I at one point really had a strong expectation. I'm sort of, I, I, you know, I'm not, I've expressed intense emotion in the past and frustration with politics failure to look out for what I perceive to be the interest of the majority. Um, At this point, I feel that politics really exists. I, 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 I guess I'm more accepting now, maybe for better or for worse, of politics as being what it is. It's sort of like the scorpion and the frog. 
you know, you can be upset with the scorpion for stinging the frog or boy, whatever the, it is. But it's like the nature of politics, politics by its very definition is going to act in, in, it, in the interest of its own self-preservation. It's actually um, why I admire so much what you and Kyle and a handful of others are doing, because I think that it is possible on the margins to force the political culture to be slightly less um, destructive and sort of uh, consumptive of society. And I think that people like you guys and others who do the really hard work every day of trying to help educate and enroll people in understanding what's happening is essential work. Um, but I think that it's also uh, a... It's a very challenging proposition that goes to the culture of what politics is and has been throughout the history of the world. Uh, well, first of all, well, thank you for that compliment, Dylan. Uh, I certainly appreciate it. I know Crystal does as well. Um, there's so much I want to ask you. So you've had like a really, really fascinating life and a fascinating career. And I guess I kind of want to start with with some basics. In my perception of you, and you could correct me if this is, you know, a mistaken perception, I view you as sort of like the definition of a populist firebrand. And I want to know about your childhood. How was the Dylan Radigan that we all know and love created? Um, well, you know, it was a, a combination of things. I was raised by a, a single, I'm an only child raised by a, a single mother. Um, my grandfather, my mother's father probably had the biggest influence on me other than my mother, obviously. My grandfather was a Hungarian Jew who immigrated to the United States and had his own business. Uh, was a, a ran an owner operated uh, business. He was ran. He carpeted hotels in New York, and so I grew up, uh, you know, with a, a, a mother uh, who was uh, a, a, a psychologist and a therapist, looking out for people who were largely um, at the lower end of the economic spectrum, um, and then had a, a, you know a grandfather who was living in New York and and wrestling with you know all the things that you had to wrestle with in New York as a small business person in the hotel business in New York, which is people like Donald Trump who don't pay you and mafia people and this sort of thing. So it's a come, I would say that, you know, the biggest Im impact is, is sort of the awareness because of my mother's life uh, in the reality of um, the economic stress and sort of disparity in this country that exists combined with um, a pride and a, and a, belief in the owner-operated uh, business operator. I think that the, the primary distinction in the economy is between owner-operated businesses, big and small, and non-owner-operated businesses. And I think that anything that, you know, you guys know this because basically what you're doing right now with this substack is an owner-operated business. You know, it, you, you the, 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 the rewards and the risks and the management of this business are this, as opposed to, you know, being a, a, a paid broadcaster for a third party. Um, so I don't know if that's, a, you know, I grew up upstate New York and uh, yeah, I, I, uh, I think I had a lot of access and opportunity myself. I know I had a lot of access and opportunity um, in New York and in the, in the, in the city early in my career. Uh, working for Mike Bloomberg and all those sorts of people, but I came from a place where I had a, a lot of perspective and, and exposure and empathy to people who had um, less opportunity, certainly than I had, and 
I guess I'm aware of the degree to which economic structure. I guess how I would summarize it is this. The primary gating system for opportunity in any economy, not just the United States, but any economy globally, is to basically control the number of people that are allowed to get from zero to one um, in any sense of that word. So if you keep people on zero, if you just never let them get on television, if you never let them get a job uh, at an ad agency or on Wall Street or at a, you know in Silicon Valley, if you just prevent them from that first opportunity, uh, it's the easiest way to maintain power. And so when you look at, you know, the, the politics of economic deprivation, you look at the politics of educational access and deprivation, all, all those deprivations of that first that first crack in the door, that first opportunity, that first step um, is the primary place where power is exercised largely in society. That was something that was very apparent to me from a, a, very early in my life. And so whenever I've had the opportunity to advocate for people to be have the chance to go from zero to one, you know, with the, you know, the Crystal talks about her first chance to go on a television, I, there, are, there are so many people that I put that I advocated to, to put on television for the first time, which is hardly, you know, uh, that's not, you know social work okay but it's it's indicative of my philosophy which is give people give it the that our job if you have the opportunity to give up other people opportunity whether it's their first investment whether it's their first exposure whether it's their first anything that the more you can do that that the better that is for the economy and the more you can create economic structures that allow that opportunity that that's the most important thing. That the that the that the broader the economic floor, that that's the most significant um, thing in society. One thing people should understand about you is, look, I'm sure you've been wrong about something along the lines, but in terms of your commentary, we were going back and watching some clips. It was like, holy shit. I mean, you you won awards for your reporting exposing Enron. Then you're dead on right about the financial collapse and really, you know, helped to spark a massive backlash and movement here in the country. We watched clips of you attacking the Affordable Care Act saying, look, this is just a giant health insurance giveaway, which was mostly not what the critique was. Was at that point, a lot of the critique was from the right of like, oh, this is horrible and it's socialism, et cetera, et cetera. You actually had the correct critique, which is you're just furthering the monopolistic abilities of these companies. Um, are you sort of surprised that they let you be on TV for as long as you were? <laughs> um, I, I think, you know, I, I yeah, that's, a uh, you know, so I think because because my career started as a financial, a print journalist in financial journalism. And because I was very aggressively trained by people like Matt Winkler, who was the editor-in-chief at Bloomberg at the time, and some other people, that really the bond market, but more large, lar beyond the bond market, that you know, it, it sort of follow the money, but not just in the Watergate sense of like where the bribes are, but literally in the sense of when, when policy gates are moved, who, where is the economic benefit of those policy gates that are being moved? Um, but because of my my position as 
a financial journalist. And then because of the success of Fast Money, which I created when I was at CNBC forever ago, I had a, a very robust, a big audience um, that had sort of secured my position on television with, before I'd really had disclosed any of my political beliefs. And so because I had been at Bloomberg for all those years and then run corporate finance at Bloomberg uh, and then left Bloomberg and had, you know, a, 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 a built a big and an audience and a following as a financial journalist at CNBC, culminating with the launch and the sort of successful uh, first three years with Fast Money. By the time I entered political journalism, no one was even asking me what my opinions were. And so that they did. And so by the it's like if anybody had asked me ahead of time what my opinion was on Democrats or Republicans or, you know, health care, et cetera, et cetera. I'm sure they wouldn't have put me on television because it was so misaligned. You're, it's not aligned with the Democrats or the Republicans because neither the Democrats nor the Republicans work for people. They work for their own uh, advancement at the expense of people in, in different ways. Um, and so when you say, oh, we want to have health care, it's like, OK, you want to have health care. Well, let's talk about what, what is health care. Um, you know, and then what is what, what is the system you're calling health care and how big is the gap between those two things? You know, and, and healthcare obviously is, you know, helping people to eat better and sleep more and smoke less and drink less. And, you know, the healthcare is actually a very simple thing of it's helping people have less sugar. And I mean, it's ridiculous how what healthcare actually is. Um, the American healthcare system is invested in monetizing, keeping people half alive, right? You know, it's it's sick people in need of constant chronic treatment is the profit center for the American healthcare system. Um, and, you know, anyway, I, I don't we can go to the weeds with that. I don't, I don't want to go off. on. So, but you, so you basically feel like you sort of snuck in under the radar. Like they kind of right. felt like, oh, I, this guy, he's like a Wall Street guy. He's one of us. Yeah, it was. I mean, snuck in makes it sound like it was a scheme of some kind. I was a popular financial host. And they were like this and the financial crisis happened. And I was really one of the only people, probably the only people on mainstream broadcasting to actually confront um, the the sort of powers that be for their solutions. And Phil Griffin, to his credit, um, was, you know, said, why do you what else do you want to say? Um, and so I said, why don't you give me a couple of hours of oxygen and I'll show you. And so. Um, but they could have taken me off the air any time, and they didn't. I mean, to their credit, I mean, they let me, you know, whether it was, you know, the Wahhabi Muslims, uh, you know, people love to vilify all the Muslims. It's ridiculous. You know, it's, it's, there's so every, every every issue is um, is a joke, really, honestly. But you guys are doing a really good job. Honestly, I, you know, I um, I have a huge admiration for the reporting and the quality of the analysis that you guys do. In my case, it was an accident of history. I happened to be had have had success as a financial journalist. There was a chair that opened up in political journalism, so I took it and I said my piece. I wrote my book. I did. I you know I did. I, I did. I said and did everything I could possibly say in that domain, and then uh, left. Obviously, what do you think when you see now? the commentary on CNBC, and even going back to the subprime mortgage crisis and the Great Recession, you see other hosts, and like you said, 
you know, 95% of them had no idea what they were talking about. And in fact, they would invite on the CEOs of various big financial firms and whatever they would say would be the propaganda pitch to the audience. And so they would pretend like, there's not even going to be a downturn, bro. I don't even know what you're talking about. We're not going to be in a recession. So what do you think when you see how bad CNBC is? And then also how bad MSNBC is now, where it's just like, you know, it's just totally mindless partisan drivel. What do you think of that? Um, the true answer is I never, I literally never, the only time I'm ever exposed to any of those channels or any of those, of any of that content, um, is through some sort of incidental accident where I happen to be either be in, in someone else's home or an airport where it happens. And so I consume none of it. I consider, I, so I actually believe the most important thing in your life is where you put your attention and your time. And when you allow yourself to put your attention and your time where those who are producing cable news want you to put it or on them, you are um, destroying your own life. And you're also not only destroying your own life, but you are failing to capture your creative potential to help yourself and other people. So in other words, I don't look at any of those platforms as um, places where information is revealed or discovered or discussed. Those are agencies that produce content to monetize attention um, on behalf of advertisers or on behalf of a, of a constituency. And they're very good businesses to do that, but there's, they're not a source of information and they don't have any utility to anybody other than those who are inside of that system and working there and making money from it. Um, so I, um, I, I, I accept them like I would accept, you know, I, what do I think about, you know, farting crocodiles you know i, mean, I, 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 would, I would rather not be around one but i don't you know who am i to say that the world shouldn't have farting crocodiles i just don't want to be in the same room with them dylan that's going in the tweet i sent out about this interview farting crocodiles um so but. what do you consume then like you're obviously extraordinarily no, I, 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 Twitter, go ahead i, I Twitter is the a, a, a well curated tweet Twitter feed which I have which I have is the by Twitter is the best news agency source in the world. And right? who are your some of your favorites in your Twitter feed? I mean I don't know I um I follow all the major news so figure I you know I all the all the news all the institutions right so everything from BBC Reuters New York Times Wall Street Journal LA Times Boston Globe like but again no buy I, I, whatever the, the all the major city papers all the major news agencies and then there are individual reporters you know there's reporters that are in Tehran that are covering the 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 the, the, the president in Iran there's some reporter Martin Bashir for the BBC as a, who's an old friend is covering the Pope. You know, there's, there's, so there's that whole sort of institutional world. Then you have a, a ton of world leaders themselves who publish Twitter feeds. So you can have direct to every president, every prime minister, every foreign affairs minister. You know, the, you know, Christopher Freeland is tweeting in Toronto and, you know, uh, you know, the, the prime minister in Mexico, Obrador is saying what he has to say. Bolsonaro says what he, like they have all this sort of, I won't call it primary sourcing, but at least you can see what they're, they're putting out. 
And so I, I, I like that. And then I just have my sort of biases because I'm obviously a, a fan of you guys I, because I think that you guys do a, a good job. So I follow whatever you guys are doing, right? Or I'm a fan of Matt Stoller because I agree with Matt in regard to the monopolies. And, and, and I think Matt does the best job in the world of an, an, analyzing what's going on with the monopolies. Um, I've always been a fan and have enjoyed Glenn Greenwald. Um, and so I, you know, he's, he's annoying and he's outrageous, but he's also brilliant. And, and I think that, you know, he deserves certainly a little bit of my attention for, for whatever that that's worth. He was our um, guest last week, as a matter of fact. Yeah. So, yeah. So, I mean, so with that, that, but you know, the risk in that is it gets to be a little, so you get into this click of some kind where it's like, okay, well, it's like whatever, but it's a, but a, listen, I like those, I like those people. I like you. I like those guys. Um, but then, you know, you have the, what's his name? David Portnoy from Barstool Sports, who's blathering about the stock market, but is interesting and entertaining. And obviously I'm a fan of Jimmy Dore, who I think, you know, as outrageous as he may be, as I, he's a friend and I'm and I'm a fan. So there's sort of there's this sort of um, web based content, I guess you'll call it. Um, but but also, you know, Mike Cernovich is interesting on the, you know, who, who was more on the was more of a conservative leaning type of voice. I, you know, I follow Charlie Gasparino, who's just an old New York. He's sort of aggravating, but you know, um, but so you know, people like that. But at the core of it, it's the large the large agencies and institutions, and then as much primary sourcing as possible from the ministries of foreign affairs and the prime ministers. And uh, you know, the, the, you can't beat it. On you know, for what I, I can't, I you know, nothing competes with Twitter for news. Nothing even comes. So, Dylan, I hate to do this to you because if you're anything like me, you don't like seeing yourself in old stuff. But mm. what I want to do is, Eric, if we could throw up his uh, what I think is honestly one of the most legendary rants of all time on cable news. I want to watch this now a decade on and then get your opinion on what you said and the issue. So, Eric, sure. could you run that, please? Sure. And Susan, he's what you're saying is exactly the point that Dylan is making. It's no. not about one guy. It's about all no, of them No, I actually disagree. I think Dylan's saying it is about one guy. What is it is about one guy. What would you like him to do? I would, like him, to, I would do. like him to go to the people of the United States of America and say, people of the United States of America, your Congress is bought. Your Congress is incapable of making legislation on health care, banking, trade, or taxes, because if they do it, they will lose their political funds and they won't do it. But I'm the president of the United States and I won't have a country that is run by a bot Congress. So I'm not going to work with a bot Congress and try to be Mr. Big Guy. I'm working with the bot Congress. I'm going to abandon the bot Congress like Teddy Roosevelt did. And I'm going to go to the people of the United States and I'm going to say, you've got a bot Congress. And until we get rid of the bot Congress, which is Jimmy Williams' constant point, which is get the money out of politics. And until a president says that's the problem and says he's going to fix it, there is no policy that I can possibly see no matter how brilliant your idea may be or your idea or my idea or her idea or your idea at home is that idea will not happen as long as there's the capacity to basically fire a politician who disagrees with me by taking funding away from him is that a fair assessment money in politics is the root of all political evil it is corruption at its worst and until we step up and kick that out of the park it's going to be the same system Oh. And only the president could do that. We're going to. No, no, no. Congress has to do it too. The Congress has to do it too. But I'll tell you what. 
How bad does it have to get? How much money has to be extracted? Know. How many things have to be hurt? brass tacks. Okay, physically, what do you do? For you go and give a speech. Right now. To, yeah, right now. Right now. You say, you say, you and then what happens tomorrow? Tomorrow what happens is you begin the process of actually investing in solving the problem. So how? I come out and I say, how? I create an infrastructure bank with 2% blending immediately. There's that. Once I explain to people the problem, once I explain to you you have cancer, the re, once you understand how screwed up your trade tax and banking policy are, believe me, you will have no issue when I incorporate an infrastructure bank that I fund with repatriated offshore money that I bring in and then use to create 2% direct lending to every business in America because when you realize that the banking system is fully corrupt and defrauding us and I come out and say that, which is what I want my president to do, that then at that exact moment I say, you know what, we got a screwed up situation here, people. You all know it, and now what? I'm going to admit it. And as a result, not only have I admitted it, but we're going to begin the process of solving it like grown-ups. They did it in World War II. They did it after the Civil War. They did it in Latin America with the Brady Bonds. We are not seeing it happen now. The panel stays uh, a, a little more emotional than I anticipated getting at work this afternoon, but what am I going to do? Brilliant. Uh, I, in retrospect, that was an interesting use of uh, Mr. Big Guy. <laughs> that was a rather funny interjection there. But Mr. so, Big what guy. do you think of the issues now, ten years on? So, um, so I would say the first thing is it is unrealistic. It is impossible to take money out of politics. So I think that that is naive and delusional. I think that the only alternative you really have is to basically shatter it such that there's a tremendous amount of money in politics, but that no one individual or institution can contribute more than two or three hundred dollars. So Lawrence Lessig mm. did a really good job on this, which is, you know, because let's say you're like, oh, well, the, the government will pay for it or we have a different ways to sort of fund it. But at the end of the day, you end up with a, some small group of people controlling all the money. Um, which inherently is going to create distortions and, and issues. Whereas if you have a broad financing base, but no one individual or institution is capable, you know, I think the Lessig's idea is basically it's a, whether it was $200 or $500, every, imagine if every single person in the country was given basically a tax credit or for let's call it 500 bucks that they have to spend. Like, you know, if I was to sort of update my thinking, it would be, Mandatory participation, illegal not to vote, and illegal not to contribute. But that everybody has to contribute, and it becomes a subject of conversation almost like fantasy football, where it's like, hey, Crystal, who are you giving your 50 bucks to? And you're like, oh, I'm giving my 50 bucks to whoever, Andrew Yang or whatever. You're like, oh, you're like Andrew Yang. Can't give your money to Andrew Yang. Guy's nuts. He's never going to win. You know, whatever it is. Got to give it to Joe Biden. Got to give it to, you know, Elizabeth Warren. Got to give it to Donald Trump. I don't care. Like, in other words, you socialize the conversation about the money and make it something that is more broad based so that no one individual matters. Um, so that would be I would say that the issue is not money in politics. The issue is control over the financing of political campaigns by a very small number of individuals that needs to be shattered and distributed. Um, which is maybe a more nuanced version of the same thing. So the, you know, anyway, that's one money. That's my thought on money and politics uh, relative to 
the repatriation of the offshore money in the infrastructure bank. Uh, I believe when they did the tax law in two, I'm pretty 95% sure when they did the tax law in 2017, Donald Trump allowed the repatriation with no strings attached, which is sort of an abomination against mankind, which would be yep. expected from them, um, which was disappointing, obviously, because that was a huge opportunity to provide the tax relief for the money to come back on shore, but to use that to finance infrastructure, to do the bridges, to do the high-speed trains, to do all the green, anything. There's so many things that could be done. Um, but anyway, they, they weren't going to do that. But I still think that basically creating a tax incentive for fixed income financing for infrastructure uh, is, a, is a good idea. And I think that more making that uh, making lending more broadly available, I, again, what we saw with the pandemic was a, a very explicit policy in favor of large businesses um, and very explicitly uh, designed to destroy uh, the smallest businesses. And, you know, the pandemic was used as a way, as a, me a mechanism for rapid economic consolidation and biological warfare on the poor. Um, you know, nowhere is that seen more than with something like the Los Angeles Central School District, uh, where uh, if you are a poor person or even a middle-class person who is depending on the public school system in Los Angeles, your child does not get to go to school. But if you're a wealthy person, uh, the private schools on the west side in Los Angeles are open. Nothing against uh, the wealthy people or those private schools or the children that are lucky enough to go to them. I'm sure quite honestly, if anybody had the opportunity uh, to send their child to one of those schools, they would certainly take it. Um, but uh, what we're seeing with the pandemic is an extreme divergence in economic resources. And we're seeing the political decisions being made in a way that actually exploits and exacerbates those decisions to specifically target um, the, the poor and the small business uh, people for total destruction, really, uh, while empowering uh, another section of the economy for um, extraordinary riches, which is, you know, for me, if I, I call it the Brazilification of the United States, which is what I think is really what's happening. That show was the one I was on with you like every Friday on that panel, way more interesting than anything that's on cable news today. It was successful. You had the hit book and then you decide to walk away. Um, why did you decide to walk away? And do you ever wish to be back in that sort of format? Um, I mean, honestly, so I here's this maybe a window into my naivete. Um, I was of the belief that because I had an understanding of the financial markets and that I could apply that understanding of the financial markets to policy in a way that was not something that other people uh, had the skill set or desire to do, that I could uniquely offer insight and understanding as to what was the what the issue with some of these policies is and very simple changes that could be made, one page policies that could be made to uh, allow for healthcare to be vastly more efficient, to allow for a large infrastructure bank, um, to allow for a uh, much more efficient flow of capital around the transition and energy, all these sorts of things, and in a way that doesn't require massive central government planned controls, but just as, a, again, uses gating system and, and, and a couple of tax policies to drive money to distribute itself or to consolidate itself. Obviously, I advocate more for a distribution of money, but not through the central gating system of um, 
the central government. Um, I was given a tremendous opportunity to work with people like like you, Crystal, and so many others who are brilliant and smart and charismatic and smart and all those things. And I was given the opportunity by Simon and Schuster to produce a book that was a, a bestseller. I was able to, you know, we had multi-million dollar budgets to travel all over the country and talk about talk to everybody and do all these things. Um, I had direct access to the cabinet of the US government, to the most senior politicians in the Senate, on and on both, to, you know, all these things, um, speaking platforms, on and on. And <clears throat> it became apparent to me after, you know, what we'll call, you know, six years of every day, every day, every day in the book and all this work, that my belief, which is, oh, people don't really, I thought people didn't really understand what I understood. And I thought that if I could help them understand that, that then they might start to change the way they make decisions. And my conclusion after doing all that work, and I may be wrong about it, but my conclusion for better or worse was it's not that they, it's not that the senior leaders in our government or in, 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 uh, even in the media or in corporate America don't understand, although they might not, but it's that they don't want to understand. There's not, there is no interest. The interest is in preserving the two, the, the two political parties and making the Republicans bad or making the Democrats bad or making the liberals bad or making the Texas is bad or New York is bad or Florida is bad or California is bad. Having a bad guy and making a living talking about how the other guy, whoever the other guy may be or whatever the other entity may be bad was the primary sort of system. And I didn't want to waste my life. I, you know, I have fabulous opportunity. I mean, I, I go right now. We've got a biotech company that's doing a heart tissue repair. We've started a a, a high tech U.S. manufacturing business that's building a biopolymer. Um, there's a, a, a software business that's working with a group called the Black Bank Foundation to empower the small bank. I can go on and on. I play about six or seven businesses that I'm either invested in, a founder of, or an advisor to, um, and. I might only get to live one life, you know, and I sort of made it, I guess I had just turned 40 years old at the time there's in 2012. And I've been doing that journalism job. And I felt like I've been, gosh, I've been given every possible opportunity, these huge platforms and uh, huge access and did my really my best work. And at the conclusion of all that, it seemed that there was absolutely no interest whatsoever. It was like, when you're done, it's like, well, is it Barack Obama or Mitt Romney? And I'm like, okay. You know, I'm in the wrong room and these are the these are not my people. And mm. so um, I wanted to be around people that were more my people and, and my people are more people that are have interesting, big ideas to actually do things that actually do things. And so whether that's a new heart drug or whether that's a new manufacturing facility or whether that's a new piece of software or whether that is um, a, a new a, a way to help educate people that is a new and interesting way to go about doing that, whatever it is, whether it's a way to invest in whatever, I mean, there's so many things. I, I guess I, I wanted to actually do things. And, and so when it became apparent to me that using words and information to try to communicate with an audience around um, how to restructure policy using primarily tax and, and financing policies, was something that there was literally no interest in whatsoever. Uh, I didn't want to waste any more of my precious hours on this earth. It's interesting to hear you say that, Dylan, because 
um, that I would say that's a radically different perspective from the way I look at it, because the way I view it is in a vacuum, the the work that you were doing had inherent value. So even if it was landing on deaf ears, which is functionally your point that like, hey, it's not really moving the needle at all. So like, what the hell's the point? I'm wasting my time. I sort of view it like it has inherent value because you're speaking truth to power. And that in and of itself is sort of like something that provides meaning and purpose. So I guess my question is, if that wasn't providing meaning and purpose at the time, I've noticed that since then, you, you're always traveling. You're always like all around the world. So is is the travel something that you look at that provides meaning and purpose? Or what is it now that gets you up out of bed in the morning and, and doing stuff? Yeah. Um, well, so first of all, I would say that you're probably right. That there probably was and is value in inherent intrinsic value in in speaking things that are truth regardless of my perception of the impact or the outcome so i think i was probably incorrect but i would say kyle what was happening for me is i was so emotionally invested i had sort of internalized the abuse of the millions of people that i felt were getting screwed and and i don't mean screwed like oh like i didn't get to get an ice cream like people were getting really messed up still are um and i think i i mistakenly absorbed a tremendous amount of the of the and not that anybody asked i did i made the decision to absorb an emotional burden that i shouldn't have in in retrospect so it became more challenging for me to do the work because i wanted to see a, a change which is really more of a, a flaw i would say that is less existent in me to this day it, it, now i would mean um, that was more a function of my ego. I wanted to have an impact. I didn't just want to say something that was true. So I would say that that is, um, I would agree with your assessment. And then maybe that's part of the reason why I've been entertaining, you know, saying some things in public on a more regular basis uh, than I have for the past 10 years. Um, so one, I would, I'll acknowledge your critique of my decision and say, you're, I, w- I would actually agree with it. Although for where I was at at the point in time, it didn't matter. I, I accrued so much frustration that if nothing, I needed to take a break. Um, as far as meaning and purpose, I love, I, I spend my days on the phone with a combination. Like I said, I love the scientists with the biotech company. I love learning with that. I love the manufacturing uh, folks that are, you know, bringing these factories uh, into the United States and in the interaction with government and with private industry uh, for that. Um, I love uh, working with some media and and some executives from places like the Federal Reserve to actually build um, a software package for minority banks and and things like that. So I would say my meaning and purpose right now is whether it's improving the efficiency of the banking system, whether it's building manufacturing in the United States, whether it's advancing um, scientific research and 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 um, medicine. That is as much a dream come true for me to be a participant, an investor, an executive in companies like that as having my own television show or my own book and being able to say something. It's just a different phase of my life. And maybe at some point the whole thing comes all, full circle in some way. Um, but, you know, uh, as far as the travel is concerned, that to me is more. The wor- I love the whole world, you know? I mean, I, I um, and the more time that I'm able to spend in more places, the more I realize 
the, the more the world collapses into, you know, a single group of human beings. And, you know, for, for you know, whether it's, you know, even that they, that they, you realize that the only villains in this world are those are, are the people that you don't know. Um, and that when you, the more you understand people, the more you know, there's a comfort in that. And so I would say the travel for me is really a, 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 the luxury of my life because my life and my, my economics of my life are lived through my relationships and decisions inside of these companies and these companies, then ability to contribute value into society, um, that those things don't require, they re, those things sometimes require me to be in certain places at certain times, but none of it requires me to be in any specific building on a regular basis. And so um, meaning and purpose for me comes through where I point my attention, which goes to these enterprises, which I like. And to be able to be wherever I want to be in the world is, is, a, is a luxury. But I think that your critique of the inherent value of speaking truth in public is something that I did not appreciate at the time because my ego was too invested in um, an outcome. Well, knowing you the little bit that I do, Dylan, it's actually more surprising to me that you lasted in the sort of controlled, you know, got to show up at the building every single day and listen to a boss and all of that environment as long as you did. Um, and it strikes me that the work you do now, as opposed to what felt to you more amorphous of uh, speaking truth and trying to educate people in the best way that you could about what was going on and what was happening to them, that felt sort of amorphous to you. And what you're doing now, it strikes me, is very tangible, right? You can see the products, you can see the companies, you can see the people whose lives are impacted by it. Do you think that that's part of what is appealing to you about what you're up to now? Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, obviously, you know, having an actual drug that actually repairs heart tissue actually come out of, you know, the laboratory. You're like, oh, that's awesome. Or actually building a factory that, you know, can does research on biopolymers that produces nitro gloves. The real thing or having a software package that is inside of a bank. Um, those things are ex extremely real. But I, I do, I think that Kyle makes an important point, which is my perception of information or public dialogue as having, uh, of, being, of being more amorphous is more a function, I think, of my relationship with, you know, my world. And mm. I don't, in other words, I don't know that any, that one is more valuable than the other. Mm. I think it's really just a, fun, I think it's a function of, over the course of a lifespan, sometimes people change where they apply their time and, and creative resources. And so for me, I had, you know, one version, which was a, an information based life. And then and now this is an, my, the current version. But I don't know that there's a I was really lucky to have that version. And I'm really lucky to have this version. Crystal and I were saying before the show, she said she was actually kind of surprised when you decided to run for Congress. Um, and I remember when I heard about your run for Congress, I was genuinely excited. So my question for you is, why did you decide to run for Congress? What were your top issues and why do you think you came up short? So I decided to run basically to complete I'd spent so much time I, you know I, I feel like you can only spend so much time 
talking about how you think things should be where you either have to shut up or you have to run for Congress. I mean, it's a cliche. Um, and so for me, in some ways, it was a completion of what I had started when I moved from CNBC to MSNBC in 2009. So the reason I decided to run was to complete the arc of my advocacy. Um, the reason I came up short was because it's very hard to succeed inside of a inside of a of a ecosystem that you have utter disdain for. Um, you, in other words, you have to, because I, I what I failed to appreciate was how much I had really come to the point where I just did not believe that even the greatest political success is still not something that's going to have a meaningful impact on the world. And so I had a, 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 a very negative relationship with the system, one, that didn't help. And then two, you know, I just made some tactical decisions that were wrong, quite honestly. Um, because I move around the world as much as I do, I really don't actually have a home district. I chose to go back to um, the, the district that I had grown up in, but it's a place that I had not lived since I was literally 18 years old. And so uh, that doesn't make you the most credible candidate. I also uh, ran as a white male in the year of the woman, which was politically um, challenging. And I did not appreciate, you know, I just, I just, there's a number of tactical failures, you know, running in a district where I really didn't have the standing that I should have had to, to run, running in the year that I ran with the culture of the year that it was, um, and running in a district that is gerrymandered you know, there. If you really want to be in Congress, and I, so basically, I would say it was a failure of proper tactical planning on my part, um, as you know, as opposed to looking at more coldly through, okay, which congressional district is most winnable, and what political party do I need to be part of in order to win in that district, and a more cynical sort of manipulation of power, which is really a much more effective way to, to occupy power um, in something like that. So I would say for me, it was a completion of something that I'd started in 2009, but it was poorly executed on my part for the reasons that I just described. It's funny. I sort of relate. I actually relate a lot to what you're saying in terms of my congressional run, which is you just come like I came into it way more naive than you came into it. I mean, you knew a million times more than I did when I ran for Congress at 20. I had no idea what I was doing. And I just genuinely naively thought like, 
if I speak to people and they, you know, they hear what I'm running on, they're going to they're going to put aside their partisan blinders and the gerrymandering of the district. And it's 2010 and it's a terrible year for Democrats. None of that's going to matter because I'm going to be speaking truth about these issues that are really important and people are going to see that and it's going to work out. And you come to realize that those tactical considerations and calculations and the year that you happen to be running in and the national political wins and the arbitrarily drawn lines of the district are so much more important as to, I mean, they really render all of the other stuff irrelevant. So it sounds to me like you kind of came into it thinking, I have a thing to say. I have a thing to say. I have things I want to do. People are going to like judge that on its merits. And when you actually do it, you realize that's not actually how this game is. That's not how this works really at all. That's exactly right. That's right. And Dylan, what were the top issues that you ran on? I I ran on corrupt, reforming a corrupt government. Right. I mean, I I just ran on the fact that the government is structurally designed not to work to to harm you, not not help you, and that um, that you need to re you need you know rank choice. I ran on things, but you know it couldn't be less appealing. Honestly, it was stupid on my part. Rank choice voting, right. Uh, That's an important issue, but taken, no, it no, doesn't no, have no, that same I believe, pop. No, I, believe it's, I believe it's the most important issue is distributed campaign finance, redistricting, and ranked choice voting. I, I believe if you don't do those three things, everything else is BS because you won't be able to. And, uh, but, and so, but when you run on a, as a politician, when you run and say, listen, the government's corrupt, we need redistricting, distributed campaign finance, and ranked choice voting. They're just like, you're a white guy from New York and you're a Democrat and you need to leave. (laughs) (laughs) That's it. That's as far as the analysis goes. Did you learn, did you feel like that experience changed your worldview in any way? Like, obviously, you learned some about the tactics or whatever. But in terms of your view of government, your view of power, your view of politics, your view of what needs to be done, did that change you? Um. Well, I mean, it's certainly, like I said, if you really wanted to have a functioning government, you'd have ranked choice voting, distributed campaign finance, and and and, re, and uh, redistrict, right? Like that is, I, I knew that going in. I believe that more than ever coming out of it. I would say that the primary tools of political candidacy are character assassination and fundraising. And the people that are the best at character assassination and fundraising like right now, the political system, particularly for congressional districts, selects for those who are the most effective character assassins and fundraisers. And so um, the people that are in Congress are the ones that are the best at character assassination and fundraising. And so if you want the people that are the best at character assassination and fundraising to be the ones in charge of making decisions, well, that's the filter that we're now using. You know, you said something interesting earlier about how, um, you know, your view has evolved a little bit on the issue of money and politics. And I find that fascinating because a very similar thing happened with me where I previously would have said it's the number one issue above and beyond everything else. But I've come to a place where I think that the decisions from the Supreme Court over the years, from the late 1970s until today, they've like so solidified the existence of money in politics and the corruption of the system that my new way of thinking is um, 
I would love to see more direct democracy, more direct ballot initiatives. And they do it at the state level in a lot of states. But if they had some sort of national direct ballot law where, you know, every time you go vote in a presidential race, you could vote on the top three or five issues, whatever it may be, war in Iraq, minimum wage, legalizing marijuana, fill in the blank. And I think that that's sort of like a workaround to the corruption where like the money in the system can still exist. And, you know, it's hard. You'd have to get a constitutional amendment to get it out. And that's very, very difficult. So do you agree with me that that would be a sufficient workaround to the corruption or no? I mean, I don't know if sufficient is it in the eye of the beholder. I think that it's a good idea. You know, I think that um, anything that allows, you know, a broader assemblage of power or that forces a broader coalition to uh, mobilize policy is inherently good. And so ballot initiatives go to that get at, at that end. I mean, the issue with ballot initiatives and you see, you know, California is sort of the ultimate ballot initiative laboratory and it's both fabulous and horrifying because, you know, it, it, money still dictates sort of, you know, there can be a ballot initiative, but the narrative on the ballot initiative is going to be controlled primarily by you know, who can put up the most billboards. Um, yeah. Not as much, though, right? But, but, and I, but I can, you can rain on any parade. I, I think Kyle has a great point, and I think that ultimately the more, I mean, the, the, let me put it this way, ranked choice voting and Kara McCormick and her efforts in Maine to get ranked choice voting on the ballot successfully in Maine, which then created momentum for its sort of increasing momentum outside of Maine, was done through a ballot initiative. And so... You know, I'm giving a, a an unintentionally circular answer. Yeah, there's no question that makes it better. Yes. Dylan, I'm interested in your views of you were talking a little bit about the pandemic and this massive upward transfer of wealth that we've witnessed. First of all, just lay out for people how you view uh, the policy choices over the past year in addressing the pandemic and what you expect the long term economic fallout to ultimately be. I mean, well, again, before 2009, there was the belief that there's a finite amount of economic resources. So there was this constant thing where it's, oh, we got to worry about the deficit. We got to worry about spending. We can't be giving away money. That money was treated as a scarce asset that was in finite supply. In order to prevent the economic collapse in 2009, a secret was revealed. And that secret was that as long as the US dollar is the global reserve currency, that there is an infinite supply of US dollars. And I literally mean infinite. And so you want a billion dollars, you want a trillion dollars, you want 20 trillion dollars, you want a hundred trillion dollars, it's it's whatever you want, okay? Now, there is one caveat with that, which is there's a certain point where the world may decide we don't want to have all of our, ad, the, and I, when I say the world, I mean specifically Riyadh in Saudi Arabia, which prices oil in dollars. Um, I mean, specifically Beijing, which holds a tremendous amount of its export surplus in U.S. dollars. 
Um, and I mean, you know, if you look at seven, it's 70 percent of all assets in the world, whether you're an African uh, treasury, whether you're France, whether you're Brazil, what doesn't matter what country you are, 70 percent of the world's assets are held in U.S. dollars in U.S. dollars. Um, and as a result of that, there is no just the secret was revealed that there's no limit to the number of dollars that can be created. Now, it only happened one time, and because it only happened one time, and because most people don't really understand what I just said, it, it was sort of like, it was a flash in the pan. No one still really understands how much money was created. You know, when it, so when I say there's $26 trillion that was created in order to survive the financial crisis, people say, oh, well, no, the TARP was $700 billion, and they paid it back, and blah, 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 because they don't understand when the Federal Reserve put out what this bond insurance, uh, they and it basically it said every bond that exists in the world will not default because if it does default, the Federal Reserve will in intervene. They assume responsibility for the payment of all the credit of every debt piece of debt in the world, um, which then stabilizes the market, right? Because then everybody's like, "Oh, well, the hell with it. If they're good for everything's good, like it, it, it was, it worked." Right. It was it was successful. And so that happened. Um, and then the consequence of that was you saw over the next two or three years, significant increase in base commodity prices. So think corn, uh, think uh, soybeans, think wheat, things like this. So what happens when the U.S. dollar, when the U.S. government says we'll print as much money as we need to do whatever we want to keep this thing going? The world can't get rid of dollars and they can't do, get rid of the bond market. But what they can do is they can double the price of things that are in dollars. So oil went up to 100 bucks a barrel. Um, stocks go up a lot. Asset prices go up a lot. Um, and commodity prices go up a lot. And then what happens is the poorest, hungriest countries in the world are the only ones that really feel the impact because unless you're on the real margins of eating or not eating, like people in Egypt were, um, or like people in Tunisia were, um, no one really cares. But people in Egypt and Tunisia really care because all of a sudden we've doubled and tripled the cost of bread. And now there's a huge amount of people in Egypt and Tunisia who can't eat, which then leads to things like the Arab Spring in 2011. Anyway, so the back end of all this, and this is a necessary prelude to what happened last year with the pandemic. The government figured out that they could print an infinite amount of money and get away with it. When the U.S. policymakers and the U.S. public came to understand what they understood in China and Europe, um, about a month or two earlier, so mid-March of 2020, which is that this is an actual pandemic and we actually want all the human beings to stay in their house and not leave for an indefinite period of time, which is an incomprehensible statement before March of last year. Um, when people came to realize that statement, it was, it was horrifying, and we and the financial markets went into a free fall, and all everybody sort of has a sense of what began to happen there. And so, what you saw then was a bunch of policy responses. You see the policy response in Italy. You see the policy response in China. You see the policy response in the Netherlands. On and on. 
every other country or the vast majority of other countries said, listen, we're going to force everybody to stay inside of their houses for an indefinite period of time. This is going to create a catastrophic collapse in revenue for very specific businesses. Every hotel and movie theater, every public venue of any kind, concerts, etc., every restaurant, every gym, every hair salon is not going to see a 10 or 20% like recessionary decline in revenue. They're going to see a catastrophic collapse in revenue. At the same time, the people that work in those businesses are going to see a catastrophic collapse in income. That's a very isolated and targeted, although large group of people, let's call it a third of the economy or 25% of the economy. <laughs> Policymakers in Europe and China the places, understood this and they made a very explicit policy that said, okay, we need to be giving these people one or $2,000 a month if we're gonna ask them to stay home. And we need to be giving money directly to the hair salons, gyms, restaurants, hotels, and concert venues to keep them up and running. In the United States, because the United States holds on to the fraudulent piece of propaganda of this rugged individualism, which is actually completely a lie and a fraud, but because it is used as a political prop, like the Marlboro Man, it's like, it's like, is smoking really good for you? Because there's a cool guy who's like a studly, like cowboy dude on a horse. Like, okay, well, yes, that's a studly cowboy dude on a horse. But do you want to have lung cancer and die? You know, and so like, yes, we have like rugged individualism is a great and awesome macho identity. It's also a complete fraud and a lie. Um, and so that lie forces a political posture that says we will print an infinite amount of money because we know we can do that like we did in 2009 with the CARES Act, meaning the CARES Act was a replication of the legislation from 2009. And in, in printing an infinite amount of money, we will again selectively give out that benefit. To the wealthy and corporations. To the, to the people who are already large corporations or rich. And when the government and the Democrats were, literally, with that CARES Act, decided they were going to allow infinite money printing, which is a correct decision. I'm in favor of infinite money printing in that situation. Anybody who's looking at that, I think, would be. It's a catastrophic situation. But when you go with infinite money printing, you cannot be selective in where you assign that benefit. And then to specifically be selective to assign that benefit, to specifically deprive the people that are the most targeted by the catastrophe. So it's like saying to the people, I mean, I, there's a thousand metaphors. I won't get you, you can make up your own metaphor. But it's taking the individuals who are the most severely targeted by the catastrophe, both the employees and the business operators or the small businesses that I'm just that I was describing that were the most affected by the pandemic and specifically depriving them of access to resources and access to schools. And when you specifically isolate 
the group of people that's already being the most targeted by the biological crisis, whilst by simultaneously making them also the most deprived from the financial benefits of the infinite money printing, you have now migrated to an explicit economic policy that is taking advantage of the pandemic to ensure the economic annihilation of that group while simultaneously ensuring the massive wealth accumulation from those who benefit the most, which the obvious great beneficiaries are anybody who operates in the digital sphere. Because when you force everybody to work from home, you have this massive migration, this accelerated migration to digital, um, which we're all very familiar with. The most famous sort of beneficiary being Zoom, um, but you know, obviously uh, Tesla, et cetera. But the other thing, the secondary thing is when you do infinite money printing, what happens? Asset prices go up, commodity prices go up. So the stock market goes crazy, Bitcoin goes, Bitcoin goes crazy, soft commodity prices go crazy, because that is where the financial consequence of infinite money printing is seen through wild asset price inflation. Mm. Wild asset price inflation benefits those who already own assets which is not the person who works at the hair salon, the gym, or the bartender, et cetera, or the the roadie who carries the mic for, you know, whoever the touring band is. So um, when I say that the pandemic was used as a matter of policy to, to accelerate the Brazilification of the United States, what I mean is it was used to ensure the massive increase in the value of the wealth of those who already owned assets. And it was used to accelerate the um, not only the destruction of the wealth of those who don't own assets, but to ensure that those people's children were the most abused and deprived of education as well. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, uh, you know, that's the logical end result of what we've been talking about. We come full circle right back to the issue of big money in politics. And I also think that that's going to lead to an increase in radicalism of all stripes because you've left people no out. And to your point, I'm reminded of the Rand Corporation study that came out about a year ago, which found that effectively the top 1% has robbed $47 trillion from the bottom 90%, where it's so bad that every American in the bottom 90% would have an extra $1,144 per month if you just kept the wealth distribution the same as the post-World War II period. So you've effectively stolen almost $50 trillion. So that leads to my last question, which is, and I'll turn it over to Crystal. Um, You described yourself earlier as an optimist. Give me a reason for some hope and optimism. What makes you optimistic? People are awesome. The world is beautiful. Um, Most people are awesome. People are brilliant. Information sharing is at an all-time high. Um, the younger the people are, the more they're connected they, they are with each other, the more borderless they are, um, the more creative they are, and uh, the more adaptable they are. And so uh, really, I think that what you're seeing is a legacy system in, in its last gasp of sort of desperate self-preservation, even though it's in sh- sure to collapse. I understand that the bit- biggest risk is this wild radicalization um, that you just referenced, and I, and I respect that that risk is real, but I, I personally believe that human nature is ultimately more constructive and creative 
And I think that the gaps in the failures of the, all these systems creates more incentive and more opportunity for that creativity. Whether it's the young people in Myanmar that I talk to right now that are inside of the, you know, they're suffering from a coup, uh, but there's a huge populations of people in Myanmar that are very active in a dialogue, not just with the young people in Thailand, but with young people around the world. Uh, same can be said in Russia, in China, uh, in Africa, in Brazil, uh, and in the United States. And so I think that where that you're that you are as pessimistic or optimistic as to where you put your attention. And when you put your attention on people that are young and creative, you see an incredible amount of youth and creativity and and possibility. Um, and I think also because I have the benefit of working with young scientists and with young manufacturers, et cetera, et cetera, and old people, you know, I think that there's sort of, there's a great combination of people that are over 70 and under 40, that is actually a great um, collaboration, that the, that the sort of, that the intransigence happens between 40 and 70, because those are the people that are the most incentivized to sort of try to preserve the status quo because they're in sort of that period of life. It's the, the nature of the beast. But um, I think that between the 70 plus crowd and the under 40 crowd, that those that that is an incredibly adaptable, creative uh, space. And I think that ultimately um, that that wins out. Um, you know, I, I could be wrong, Kyle, but I, I, what's the point of if if you go to the other side of the of the fence, what's the point? Yeah. Yeah, you're right, though. The boomers and the Gen Xers, no hope there. Um, <laughs> Dylan, uh, you're a treasure. I really mean that. Um, I feel really lucky to know you. I feel really proud that you're the first person that ever put me on television anywhere. Um, I understand that you are thinking of starting a Substack. Tell us about that. Well, I mean, yeah. I, again, going to Kyle's point about um, the inherent value of speaking truth I have been, you know, a, a number of people have, have suggested that it was worth doing something with Substack. Uh, you know, what exactly? Um, I'm not quite sure yet, but I do believe we will go forward with probably a video version of a use of Substack to provide video that um, speaks the truth. Okay, I just got really excited. I, was... <laughs> I just got really excited. Everybody, uh, do you have a name for it yet, Dylan, or no? Yeah, it's called The Truth. The truth. Okay. So everybody check out Dylan on Substack. I'm really excited. I didn't know you were planning on doing video on Substack. Now I'm really excited. Crystal, Crystal wanted to know when it's going to launch, and I said I think soon. So I, you know, you can see I have a touch of ambivalence. But I think it's a good idea. And, you know, no, it's, it's a great idea. It's a great idea. And the truth I'll is... You guys. you guys are going to have to be my, my, my mentors. Well, I don't know. <laughs> I think you pretty much know what you're doing, Dylan, in this yeah. area. But... And tell everybody where they can find you on Twitter, too, Dylan. It's just at Dylan Radigan. Gotcha. Yeah. yeah. Well, I will say, circling back to, you know, the conversation we're having about the inherent value of speaking truth, um, the discourse and the sort of national conversation is decidedly poor when you're not involved with it. Agreed. So really yeah. excited to see what you're doing there. And Dylan, it's such so great to catch up with you a little bit. Thank you so much for taking the time. Thanks, Dylan. Thanks for having me, guys. And congrats on everything you've got going. So... So the one and only Dylan Radigan, I have so much to say about him and also that conversation. As I mentioned a couple of times, like I've known him for a long time. Mm -hmm. The first person he put me on TV before even I had my stupid like photo scandal mm -hmm. thing. And then when I had that, he was also the first person to have me on. So you were a candidate the very first time? Yes. Okay. Yeah, I was a candidate. He had me on just as like, 
here's a candidate. She's right. interesting. She's running on an interesting platform, which no one else <laughs> was doing. What in, in your platform appealed to him, if you I remember? Can't you can't remember. remember. Okay. I really can't remember. And then um, when the photo scandal happened. Non-scandal scandal. Yeah. He had me on. We actually watched the clip recently, yes. which is super cringy for me. I to... liked it. I thought, <laughs> listen. He's phenomenal. He's, exa- no, no. he's the same. I was, yeah, it was painful. She's too humble. Anyway. No, you were great. You were really a natural. Seriously, um, you were good. That's not true. Anyway, then once I lose, he starts having me on his show. That that clip that you played that had like the panel there, it's called mm-hmm. the Mega Panel. I was on the Friday Mega Panel with him every single week, and then it was it was usually me and Torre. Were you paid at that point yet, or no? Uh, Were you a paid contributor? At, eventually, yet? eventually, but not okay. at first. Me, Torre, and oftentimes Ari Melber would be the three. And then once Dylan decided I'm done and he walks away, they took some of those panelists, myself included, and made the cycle. And it was the same executive producer who ran Dylan's show, who I adore and is my TV mentor, Steve Friedman, who runs the cycle. So that's sort of my connection with Dylan. But, you know, the thing that is so um He's so self-reflective and honest that yeah. it's really, I mean, it just makes you realize how unusual that is and how much bullshit you normally get from people. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he, um, there was one point that I made that he kept bringing up repeatedly, which told me that it struck a nerve and it landed with him. Yeah. And the point was about how the commentary that he did has inherent value. So it doesn't matter if if it if people don't get it yet, the commentary well, it doesn't like transform the political system yeah, immediately. Doesn't matter because yeah. it stands on its own two feet, and it and it will stand the test of time. And if anything, like we were watching old Dylan Radigan clips, and it aged like a fine wine. You True, watch totally. it, and you're like, this is the most poignant stuff I've ever heard. On cable news. We watched him yell at Debbie Wasserman Schultz, for example. But and, he was yeah, right about... But I mean, then he apologized. He which apologized. I, I should have asked him, why'd you apologize? You, say, you <laughs> said was, totally but, reasonable well, stuff. And he was totally right in his critique. And again, this was something that I mentioned to him a little bit. It was about the Affordable Care Act. Mm-hmm. And at the time, I mean, everybody was just in this, like, Democrats are good or yes. Republicans are good. Or, you know, it was just like a stupid debate, mm-hmm. partisan debate. And he made the actual point, which is exactly what ended up happening, which is, this isn't going to be good for consumers. Mm-hmm. Like, this is just a giant giveaway to the health insurance companies and their stocks just his point was like i'm a stock analyst their stocks shot through the roof because they know this is a government guaranteed giveaway Mm -hmm. and she had no answer for that but almost no one was making that critique at that point and of course again he turns out to be 100 correct the other thing that was unique about him it really does blow my mind to watch his old clips because i'm like i can't believe that they used to allow this on msnbc (laughs) but the other thing that also blows me away is he mentioned Christian Freeland in passing, who's now a Canadian foreign minister, something like that. She's high up in Canada. She was a regular on his show. Mm-hmm. He, uh, Matt Stoller, he mentioned a lot of the people. Bernie Sanders was a regular guest on his show before the broader nation had any idea who Bernie Sanders was. A lot of the people that he brought on and highlighted and sort of elevated turned out to be really significant and really important figures who have continued to contribute in really significant ways. Yeah, he was actually also one of the first to bring on OG Cenk Uger. Yes, that's right. I believe it was was Dylan. He filled in for Dylan. Cenk would fill in for Dylan, yeah. That's right. And, you know, it was like, 
And I think every now and then he would do something with Ed Schultz, if I remember correctly. But there was, I mean, even with you, it wasn't just Dylan, right? Wasn't there like a few hosts that were sort of giving you the foot in the door or no? Or was it just Dylan? Dylan was the big one. He was the big one? The other person who was really good to me actually was Megan Kelly over on Fox News. That's fascinating. She, she would have me on every week. And yeah, she was very, she was another one who, uh, I think after Dylan had me on for my scandal, <laughs> Megan was the second person and gave me a very sympathetic hearing. Like so, it was a very fair interview. Yeah. Why do you think that is? Do you think that she's big on like the girl boss stuff? And so she wanted to be like, fight back against this? I don't know. You don't know? I'm not sure what the, why it, it worked for her. Um, she probably just felt bad. Like, what? Like, why would people come after you for such a non-scandal scandal? I think she, she feels has like, that contrarian streak. Right, yeah, 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 you know? she does. And so when everybody else was going like, what a whore, who can believe this? She was like, come on, who, who yeah. really cares, mm-hmm. you know? So I think, that's, I think that's where the instinct ultimately came from. But, you know, it also, I loved hearing him break down because this is this is what he does better than anyone else what happened in the financial system after the 2008-2009 crash and he made that point which i that was not something that i had wrapped my head around of like they realized they could print literally infinite money and so they used that knowledge in the pandemic to once again print all this money but who did it go to it wasn't yeah. the people who he used this term, who were being economically annihilated, which I think is the right language to use. Instead, it goes again to the people who already were extraordinarily wealthy, who already were at the tippy top of the system. And everybody else is not only just like left down to dry, but actively completely screwed over. And the consequences of that for those individuals is horrific, for their kids is horrific, but also for sort of the future of the stability of the country is incredibly scary. Yeah. And I actually really like that he stressed the fact that um, he's for the printing of the money. He just said, you can't give it to the corporations and the wealthy. That's the last people you should give it to. Yeah. Because unfortunately, I think a lot of people misinterpret that kind of talk as like, don't print the money. But no, it's only like hardcore right wing Austrian economists who in a giant downturn say, don't do that. We can't, you know, manipulate the money supply or whatever. It's been standard economic doctrine since Keynes, you know, that you are supposed to actually do an influx of capital into the system and the government's supposed to be the spender of last resort. But again, the crucial point, which he stresses is that, yeah, print the money. The Fed needs to get involved. That's absolutely what they should do in a downturn like that. But you have to do it the right way. And, you know, I think what he alluded to there was you needed to bail out the small businesses in particular without the giveaways to the giant corporations. But more importantly, some sort of UBI program, some sort of recurring stimulus payment. So yeah, I think that point's really important because he did stress there, like the problem was not the printing of the money, so to speak. The problem was where the money went. Yes. Yes. You know, Rahm Emanuel made this comment and it's obviously extraordinarily crass, but he says, you know, don't let a good crisis go to waste. Right. Yeah. But there is truth to it in that when you have this moment where things Things are in free fall and they're uncertain and people are afraid and things are changing really rapidly. You do have a chance at a kind of a reset. You have a chance to restructure things where, you know, things that seemed impossible a year ago suddenly are on the table because you're just facing this large scale crisis. So there was one 
alternative reality in which that opportunity was was recognized and seized upon for the good of the people, where you actually are tilting the scales back in favor of those folks who have had their economic livelihood, I mean, who have been struggling for decades and decades under the type of system that we have. That was one possibility. Mm-hmm. And instead, they went in the exact opposite direction. Yep. Let's take all of the horrible trends of the past 40 years and let's just put them on steroids and see what Copying happens. Copying 08 and 09, like Dylan said. They yes. took the same framework that they applied in 08 and 09 with the Wall Street bailouts, and they just copied and pasted. And actually, they used, I believe the Fed used authorization that came from 2008-2009, where they said, oh, the next time there's a downturn, we don't want to rely on Congress to have to approve us to spend a tremendous amount of money. You just have the ability to spend a tremendous amount of money. Right. So, like, there's the downturn, then the Fed steps in and says, we're going to spend more. But like we've said a number of times now, it's they're spending more, but they give it all to the wealthy and the corporations. And And that's fundamentally what the CARES Act was with some crumbs for the people. Funny how those automatic bailouts are only put into place for, like, the top of the financial system, you know? Automatic UBI. Yeah. Like, could you imagine if they had set up the system where it's like, no, 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 seriously, when there's a downturn, everybody gets a social security payment every single month. I until can't the imagine end of the that. Down. It's just it would be amazing. Amazing. It's just like completely removed from the reality we live in. And so to bring it back to from the theoretical to the super tangible and concrete, like that context is what you have to keep in mind when you're evaluating what Biden's doing. Right. And the programs that he's proposing. And. I always want to give him credit when it's deserved. But I th- and I think the application of the $1.9 trillion Band-Aid that they're negotiating right now in the Senate, between the House and the Senate, um, through that budget, re- budget reconciliation, like, look, it's better than nothing. It's better than what the Republicans were going to do. Okay, mm-hmm. great. You get credit for that. But in terms of the scale of the destruction mm. and the massive upward transfer of wealth, it's nothing. It's nothing. It doesn't really change any. Okay, great. People are going to get another $1,400 way late after, you know, most of the rest of the developed world were getting monthly UBI payments and the small business owners were being kept whole. Now we're going to, months after they promised $2,000 immediately, grudgingly send out $1,400 to a, you know, subset of the American people. It's on its face, it's pathetic. Well, you know, this is why Bernie was, I think, correctly viewed as the compromise candidate. He was the compromise. Yeah. Because fundamentally, internationally, he's a moderate. Social democracy is moderate internationally. So, yes, what you're alluding to is you're only beginning to have the conversation about real solutions when you talk about these broad universal programs, when you talk about Medicare for all, free college, a living wage, uh, a giant infrastructure deal, UBI, like these, these ideas and policies, which seem like, oh my God, these are giant tasks. Really, that's the moderate position. Right. Because when you play around with how devastating it is right now, you're really rolling the dice. And like I said to Dylan, you could get all sorts of radical ideologies that blossom in in a situation like this because people really are struggling beyond comprehension. They're struggling and they don't feel like what they're trying to do within the system is having an, an right. impact. And that's like, when people say, burn it down. That's when, when Obama's like, don't boo vote. And people are like, we fucking voted for you. And guess what? It got us. Dick. That's when you get into a very unstable situation. And we've seen that manifest over the past year with all kinds of political violence. And so, look, 
I keep saying this, but I think it's really important to understand, and this is part of what Dylan was saying, too. You have two choices. You either have a police state, because everybody's terrified of each other. It justifies increasing levels of security and surveillance and lockdowns and crackdowns and all of that, or you have more democracy. And that's where the distribution, he was big on, like, the distribution of money. It's not that we can get it out, but if everybody has to contribute, everybody gets a voucher to contribute, and so the power is spread and distributed across the country. If you can spread, you know, more democratic power through direct ballot initiatives, through ranked choice voting. That's the only, like, if you don't do those things, you're screwed. It doesn't yeah. ma- matter if you vote for Team Red or Team Blue. If you don't do those things and distribute some power amongst the population, then you're going to be screwed. And by the way, just to just to correct the record a little bit, because there was a little bit of doubt cast on the idea of direct ballot initiatives, which understandable, because it is true that money's going to impact it no matter what. But, but... It really is like over 80% of the time the position that you or I would call the better position ends up winning. And that's why, actually, it was in the news this week that Republicans are trying their best Mm -hmm. to make it way harder Mm -hmm. to do ballot initiatives. They want to raise the threshold to, like, you have to get over 60% in all these states. Most states, I think, is 50 or more, and they want to make it 60 or more or two-thirds in some instances or just take certain things totally off the ability to have a direct Mm -hmm. vote on it. Mm -hmm. They want to do that because they realized, holy shit, it's working when it comes to marijuana stuff, when it comes to the minimum wage, when it comes to raising taxes taxes on the rich. The way we've actually been seeing progressive victories is through the direct ballot initiatives. So while it's true that money is an issue and money can affect it and propaganda campaigns sometimes work on that front, the overwhelming majority of the time, they just don't work. And you can have a workaround to the corruption think, and people get their way. I think he was probably thinking of the California initiative exactly. that Uber and Lyft yes, basically yes, yes. gained. There are definitely against, examples of that. Because they had way more money in than the labor mm-hmm. unions and certainly And they like just the lie, too, by the way. Uh, yeah. They just lie. Shamelessly yeah. lie, et cetera. But there's no doubt that the outcome has been better. I mean, Florida just passed $15 minimum wage. As they voted for Trump. As, As they, they voted, voted for like solidly for Donald yeah. Trump. So that shows you that there's a lot of possibility there. Um, that was fascinating. I'm super excited to see his sub stack too. I hope he I hope he gets that going soon. Me too. I just want to make one more point about Dylan because okay. this is this was something I jotted down because it really struck me. Um, he was talking about how he was so emotionally invested and that's mm. why he felt let down. He was. I, I saw that when I was there. But funny enough, I truly believe, and I'm curious your thoughts on this, I think the fact that he was so emotionally invested made him very powerful and very concise a speaker. Like, I feel like all the old clips, he's very, like, punchy and he's very charismatic. You know what I mean? So it's almost like, it's terrible to say, but it's almost like the fact that this poor guy was in pain and the fact that he was, like, miserable, the fact he feels like he's not moving the dial at all, actually made him a tremendous broadcaster. Absolutely. And it also took a tremendous toll on him. Yes. Because if you're the type of broadcaster that shows up and what's the news of the day and let me read the teleprompter that somebody wrote for me, like, that's easy. You know, that Mm -hmm. doesn't take any toll. And you do Mm -hmm. that for an hour, you go home. It's no big deal. Right. Dylan was on a mission. Yeah, he was. He had a thing he wanted to say, to communicate. He had this sense, and he alluded to this, that like people don't really get what's happening Mm -hmm. and really get what's Mm -hmm. going on. Not out of condescension, but he was living in this space, and it was complicated, and he got it. And so, yeah, I would see him come in, and some of the staff that worked with him on his show, they that whole team came over to work on the cycle, so I knew them really well and heard um, from them also their experience working with him, but I 
witnessed it some some myself. He would come in the, in the morning with like this idea, right? Yeah. Like mm-hmm. there was one. I can't remember exactly what point he was trying to make, but he's like, I need five hundred baby dolls by. Yep. 4 p.m. so I can make this point like he was on a mission and yes 100% that's part of what made him so powerful because mm-hmm. he actually gave a shit yeah. like you can tell that and he had this passionate drive to communicate this thing that he felt was so incredibly important and it's exactly what made him resonate and it's also what took such a toll on him where at a certain point he said I just I can't continue yeah, no, yeah, and but I'm glad that he's trying to dip his toe back in the water, and I'm glad that my theory is something he's been playing with in his own mind, that like, hey, maybe this has inherent value to it, maybe I should go back to it, because it it's important and meaningful in and of itself, regardless of the consequences, regardless of how it's perceived. Um, before we're done here, shameless plug time real quick. Okay. Okay, everybody follow Crystal Ball on Twitter. Okay. Say your thing. At, it's at, just at Crystal Ball. It's just at Crystal Ball. With a K There's for those no, of you who don't know. No underscore or anything <laughs> weird like that. No. Good. I give you props for not having awkward underscores, which I think underscores should be banned. Well, anyway. I will say, hold on really quick. Mm-hmm. Um, having the name Crystal Ball means that it doesn't matter how early I am to a social media platform. It's always already taken. Mm. Even with the K. When I went to get on Clubhouse, like fairly early on, it's already taken. It's yeah, that's not cool. You should annoying. actually be able, there should be some sort of way to address that and like you should be able to bump somebody who doesn't have the actual name crystal ball you know what i mean there's yeah, gotta be some if you sort of ha- hierarchy if you have actually yeah, suffered it's your with government this name, name yeah, for your whole suffered. life you should have first dibs on it that's my that. personal anyway name. also ahead. watch crystal on rising <laughs> on hill tv um shout out to Sagar, of course. We love you, Sagar. I'm going to get canceled just for saying that. <laughs> I don't agree with you all the time, Sagar, but I like you. Um, everybody follow me on Twitter, at Kyle Kalinske. And if you're listening to this on your preferred podcast platform, Apple, Spotify, whatever it is, I don't know what the fuck you're doing with your life. Just tip us five bucks a month and watch the video a day early on Substack. You know you want to do it. I mean, listen, I-, I hope this doesn't sound weird or creepy or anything, but like, don't you want to see Crystal Ball? <laughs> I mean, seriously. <laughs> What are you doing? You're just going to listen? You could see my white hair, Stop too. It. You, they could see my white hair this I week. I do like your shirt this week a lot. Well, thank it's you. A it's nice a shirt. giant Italian tablecloth is the look it's that a, it is. It's a, it works well on you. But you didn't mention my hair on air, which I am i don't know if I like that or dislike that, but I've aged 10 years in a day. This is what happens when I don't diet, ladies and gentlemen. This is very white on the side. You could see it. Guys, give me the tight shot well, here. Give me the, Give me the tight one. It's very unfair. See? Look at that. Look at, look at that hair. Look, you see, you get to do the manly salt and pepper shit. With women, it's like once you start having gray hair, nobody wants to see you anymore. And they're just like, get off. So that is, I, I totally agree with that point that it's much more difficult for women when they age versus men because you've heard this word all the time when it comes to an older man. Oh, he looks distinguished. Mm-hmm. Like he looks distinguished. Like, you know, there's something that becomes more sexy about a man as he gets older. Whereas, yes, with women, it's like, are you fertile or not? I mean, mm-hmm. if you're not fertile, society says, go fuck yourself. Society's like, we yeah. don't want to look at you anymore. Go hide yourself. Yeah. So anyway. So anyway, but you guys know you want to see Crystal Ball. So go sign up on Substack, $5 a month. Um, <laughs> we love you guys. And actually, I'm kidding. If you want to listen to us on the audio platform, whatever, do whatever you want. We still love you. Yeah, I kind guess. of a little bit. <laughs> anyway. All right. Love you guys. See you. All right, guys. Enjoy the week.